We're moving ahead in our study in the book of Psalms, and we're in this, uh, what we call the study on the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, we were in Psalm 69 last week. We're going to one that is considered uh, not one of the major imprecatory Psalms, but a minor one. I guess they classify those. And it's an interesting Psalm because it's really more of a prayer and a dirge as the uh, text in the new king james has a title you know to the psalm and it says a dirge and a prayer for israel destroyed by enemies and it's a psalm of asaph uh, asaph's psalms are several of them attributed to him he was most likely one of david's assistants he was a levite and one who was a songwriter okay and he uh, would write these uh, these psalms very similar to the writing of david um, but this one is actually a prophetic psalm. It was fulfilled in the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in around 586 BC, shortly there before. In the years preceding that, there were waves of captivities and besiegement. But it's primarily the, the uh, Babylonians that were the, I guess, instrument that God used to judge Israel and also. Israel to be brought captive into the land of Babylon to be a witness to the Babylonians and sometimes the way the Lord works as we say is mysterious but um, God is a God who works on all kinds of different directions at once he upholds all things by the word of his power and he is the one that can work in the enemy's heart and also in the believer's heart or uh, in the case of the nation of Israel unbelieving Israel and he was using them in that. And so Psalm 79, 13 verses of it, is a psalm that just pictures for us the judgment that has gone on in Jerusalem. So kind of keep that as a backdrop and understand what it's about. And uh, by the way, it's coupled with Psalm 77 and 78, which are um, the victory of God's people out of Egypt, Psalm 77. And then the march through the wilderness of Psalm 78. Then you come to Psalm 79 and you have them abandoning God, uh, sort of, in their, and God judging them in that. And we're going to look at that in the minutes that we have ahead. All right, Psalm 79, a dirge and a prayer for Israel destroyed by enemies. A Psalm of Asaph. Verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling places. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us, lest your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. For we have been brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us, and provide atonement for our sins, for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. 
Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are appointed to die. And return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we open up your word tonight. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for giving it to us. And Lord, even now, we just would pray that you'd teach us as only you can. Help us to be a people that remember our God and praise you now while, and work for you and serve you while it is yet day. And Lord, we ask that uh, you would continue just to heap your blessings upon us, not for our namesake, but for yours, that we may indeed, Lord, give you the glory in all things whether small or great. And we thank you for this psalm, and we pray you'd open it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, Psalm 79. And if you want an outline, there are four parts to this psalm. And it's interesting because these four parts are actually open up with phrases, um, and they're found in verse 1, verse 5, verse 9, and verse 12, if you want to look at it. The first one is, the mourner. And by the way, each one opens up with a name or an address of God. So you have, O God, O Lord, um, O God our Savior, and O Lord again in that. And each one sort of breaks up this chapter in, or this psalm in that. The first section, verses 1 to 4, deals with the mourner. And it's beholding God's judgment. And you picture Asaph as he's prophesying. Um, and in just gen- few gen- well, several generations to come from David's time, uh, you come to the time when the Babylonians would besiege Jerusalem, and over really a series of years, they would lay waste to that city, ultimately ending up in the final captivity and the destruction of, uh, of that great city. And it would be the next generation who would come out again of Babylon and go back and rebuild, right? We have the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, um, the post-exilic books, and how God would use those times to go back and reestablish the people in the land. And, of course, later on, Jesus would be born in that land, and he eventually would go to a cross in Jerusalem. And so you have that. Anyways... There is this call, um, or, or basically statement that the psalmist makes, and he starts off by addressing God. He says, O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. And he's referring to the outside nations, the people that weren't uh, supposed to be in their land. They were there, all right? Your holy temple they have defiled. And that was true uh, when Jerusalem was eventually ransacked in several different occasions in its history. Um, one of the things that, of course, occurred was the, the destruction uh, of Jerusalem, and you have the temple itself. That was the very place that Solomon had built initially. David had started the project, but it wasn't going to be David, but his son, rather, that would finish it. And um, eventually that temple would be destroyed. Okay? When Asaph is writing that, most likely the temple, again, hadn't been built yet. Okay? So it's definitely prophetic when he's talking about that. Uh, They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. And at the time of Asaph's writing, Jerusalem was not in heaps, but it definitely would be. And the Babylonians certainly did that. And they carried off all the fine uh, 
portions of the temple and they took it you know all the the golden articles and all the precious metals and anything that they could get their hands on and they took those things uh, in that and they left a lot of dead people in their wake right and that's what the, the psalmist goes on to say the dead bodies of your servants they have given us food for the birds of the heavens the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth their blood they have shed like water all around jerusalem there was no place that you couldn't find the shedding of blood and there was no one to bury them and we have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. And again, this sense that they had become literally a laughing stock for their enemies. And that is always a danger when a nation like Israel, which committed to be built and covenanted with God, God covenanted with them, that they would follow God. And God said, it's a conditional covenant. If you follow me, I will bless you. I will give you victory over your enemies. I will drive out the nations before you. And he was going to make them prosperous in their ways. And, but it was conditional on them being obedient to him. And when they chose not to do that, they suffered God's judgment. And often the judgment came in the form of nations coming around them, nations that did not know God and uh, in those days, as even today, it's still that way, that it was seen culturally that if you were like a, you had a pagan god, um, like the god Baal, right, or something like that, and you were to go and have victory over uh, God's people in this case, they would attribute that victory to their pagan god. And it ultimately made God, the true God, look terrible, didn't it? And the psalmist reminds uh, people that that's what they're doing they're laughing by the way in america i though we're not israel and i don't want to play that game too much you know in that but it's interesting in our founding of a nation as maybe imperfect as some of our founders were they were people that did covenant with god in the way they formed this land and the, the nation and our laws and other things and they wanted god to be their their headship and that has been something that's been very important in American history. They'd like to take that away from American history now, so we don't know that. But I would just say this, that I think as a nation, though we're far more people now than in our founding, um, we have a lot more military might, all of that. We've, in many ways, become a laughingstock of the world, and in, part, in particular our enemies, in the sins that are being embraced in our land. And so that principle that was given to Israel, I think, is a principle for any nation. And God will bless a nation who remembers him and follows him. But as the, it is written in scripture, a sin is a reproach to any people. Any people, all right? Anywhere. And we have to be careful. We do not become a scorn and derision. And certainly for the believer, let's leave nations and national scene, but let's go into the church, right? Often... Uh, and all of us have known people that have walked away from the Lord or committed a grave sin, and they've brought disrepute to the Lord and to the church as well. And often, you know, people use that as an excuse not to become a Christian um, or not to attend a church because they're all hypocrites, right? That's what they say. Well, uh, first of all, I, I think that's an easy excuse, and you will find some measure of hypocrisy in everybody. But I would say don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Jesus is holy, harmless, and undefiled. He is our king, and he is the one who leads us all the way. And he did that with Israel as well. And so God was not done with them, 
And this psalm reminds us of that later on as you go down through that. And we see that. Um, There are several things. And by the way, that's a reoccurrence in the psalms uh, several times. Uh, There's a warning that they would be a reproach to their neighbors. Psalm 44 verse 13. You make us a reproach to our neighbors. A scorn and a derision to those all around us. And that is, um, again, if, if you want to live in sin, that's what will happen. Psalm 80 verse 6 says, You have made us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Psalm 130 verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its foundation. By the way, that is the promise that God would um, deal with the, the enemies of Israel. In Psalm 79, he lists some of those nations around them, okay? Um, Edom and Ammon and uh, those nations that were right around their neighbors. And yet God would also someday judge those nations specifically in that. And, and you see that. You have Ammon, Moab, and Edom mentioned in this psalm. And uh, later on, it's in Ezekiel, I believe, uh, that the Lord judges them specifically. Ezekiel 25, if you read that. So God was not done with those nations that were crying out, saying, level it to the ground. That's what raise it means, right? Level it. Destroy it. And there are people today that hate God, hate Christians, hate anything that the Bible might hold, and they say destroy it all. Well, God will have the last laugh, right? That's Psalm 2. He holds them in derision, it says. He laughs and holds them in derision. Exodus 15, verse 17. Uh, The land was God's inheritance. And he had reminded the Jew here uh, with the pen of Moses. He says, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place. O Lord, which your hands or you have made for your own dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have made established and um, you see that psalm 28 what was the people were also his inheritance psalm 28 9 save your people and bless your inheritance shepherd them also and bear them up forever what a great prayer prayer of david shepherd them and here's david who was a shepherd and he knew that characteristic of god that god was able to shepherd and to bear them up what pictures there is an injured sheep that is taken by the shepherd and lifted up and placed upon the shepherd. And now he's on the shoulders of the shepherd or that, that sheep. And that's the best place to be, isn't it? Well, God's like that. And you can claim that too because you're one of his children. If you know him. They could live in the land and enjoy its blessings as long as they obeyed the covenant. And in particular... Um, God told them that he would, he would expel them from the land if they didn't obey. And you can look at that in uh, Leviticus chapter 26. Um, he warned them very clearly. And again, this is 500 years before David's time or Asaph's time. He warned them, gave them the word, and then later on reiterated it. And then another almost well, 400 years later, they would be facing the Babylonians, Right. And then the Romans, or the, the Greeks, and then the Romans after that. Um, and yet, 
it seems like there was that cycle of Israel of unbelief where God would uh, give them grace and space and mercy to repent and they wouldn't and then he would have to judge. And we see that Psalm 79 is an instance of that. So Leviticus 26.33 says, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths. You know, they didn't enjoy they didn't practice the resting of the land and the resting that god commanded them to have um he exacted that back when you look at the times that they failed to uh, to exercise the sabbath year for example and then eventually he has 70 years where the jews out of the land and that land had at rest it was destroyed but it had rest anyways um as long as it lies desolate, you are in your enemy's land, and then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time, it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee, and they shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues." They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. Also in their father's iniquities which are with them they shall waste away. That's not very pretty is it? That was what God told him. I think that's pretty clear. That's pretty concise. You'll be scattered among the nations. You're going to be living in among your enemies. And you're going to be so scared that when a leaf shakes, you're going to run. There won't even be anybody there. Imagine living like that. Sin does that. Sin will cause us to uh, remove ourselves from God. Although you really can't remove yourself from his presence. He's everywhere. But fear will drive you. And we're living in a world today that's driven by its fears, isn't it? I could go on and on. I, I won't on some of that. But there's the expulsion. And that's repeated in Deuteronomy. Um, they would be defeated. Their bodies would be left unburied. And you read of that in Deuteronomy. Maybe it's some. I'm looking here. Well, it says their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. And that was in Jeremiah's day exactly what took place. Look what Jeremiah 7.33 says. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. And no one will frighten them away. And they were nobody there to, to scare away the animals. Imagine looking out your window as you're one of the last of the remnant in Jerusalem. And you're watching the birds and the beasts of the field eating your neighbor's bodies. Sad times. And it was because of the result of their sin and their stubbornness of not repenting that that happened. God was going to drive it home in their hearts the hard way. Yet, over and over again, um, you have Asaph identifying with the Lord. And he identifies the Lord with the situation too. In this psalm, you have your inheritance, your holy temple, your servants, your name. And I like what Asaph does because 
he, in his prayer, and that's what this is, a prayer, it's also a dirge, and then it's a very somber song. Um, no one likes to go out and sing of your defeat, but that's what it is. And it was a reminder to the Jew who would sing this psalm that this is, your, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't live for me, live for God. And he reminds God, though, this is your inheritance, Lord. This is your holy temple. This is your servants, your name. And what he's doing is identifying with God, but also putting God to the situation. Because God told him he would not leave them forever. He told him he'd gather them back into that land. He tells Asaph, later your sons will praise me. And that's a great blessing, isn't it? Knowing that no matter how bad it gets, God is still there and he will still have a remnant and he will still make his name known and identify with his people, even those who are sinners. Let's go to the next one here. We have the sufferer. That's verses 5 to 8. Feeling God's anger, should be capital G there, uh, the sufferer feeling God's anger, verses 5 to 8. And it says, How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. That's the imprecatory part. There's an imprecation there where he says, pour out your wrath, right? And that is a prayer. He's asking for God to judge the nations. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let us or let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. There is this shift where he goes from the, um, the first part of this, the mourning of it, you know, crying out, to realize the realization of the suffering that this will bring, but also knowing that God will still have his tender mercies. And I think of that. In the midst of great judgment for Israel, Um, and the devouring of Jacob or his descendants, right? God would still show forth his tender mercies to them. And he did over and over and over again. And even in Babylon, we just finished that book, The Church in Babylon by Erwin Lutzer. And over and over again in that book, we just are reminded how in spite of the way things appear to be going, even in America or in the West or whatever with Christianity, God's still in charge, He's still powerful. He's still demonstrating his grace and his mercy. And he's given us a great opportunity to be light for him in Babylon, figuratively speaking. God is a great God. How long, he says, how long? Sometimes our patience compared to God's patience um, is a lot lacking, isn't it? Of course it is. God is a God of long-suffering, right? A thousand years to God is nothing, right? It's nothing. He's eternal. He inhabits eternity. It means that God is not bound by time. He's outside of time. My problem is I'm bound by time. And as the days click by and the years or whatever on the calendar, and you say, oh, Lord, how long will this maybe last in my in my world or in my scope of influence or, or whatever else? And sometimes for people, it's some something that they're suffering with. Some great thing. How long? 
Psalm 6.3 says, My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? <laughs> Good verse right there. You have a troubled soul? Sometimes my soul is troubled. And I can just, the answer to that is that God is still with us, with us isn't he? In the midst of that. Psalm 78.58, and by the way, he was jealous over them. Um, and that's the reason God allowed the Babylonians eventually to come in and to disperse the Jews and take them captive and kill them. You say, God allowed that? Why would a good God allow that? Because he loved them. And he loved those that would come from them, the generations to follow. And for that pressing moment, which was a crushing moment, he was demonstrating his great love and his jealousy for them. By the way, God can be jealous in a holy jealousy. Um, it's hard for us to be holy, you know, in our jealousies. Uh, but, you know, I understand certainly someone you love or is close to you or somebody who's given your affection to, to you, like a husband-wife situation, you should be jealous if all of a sudden your spouse is giving their affection to someone else, right? I mean, that's wrong to, for, for that kind of thing. So there's a jealousy that's like that. And that's sort of the picture it is the way God is. Um, the book of Hosea, right? The book of Hosea is the book that deals with um, Hosea who goes and he's told to go marry a woman that would become uh, a harlot. She would prostitute herself. And there's some dispute whether God told him before or after, but nevertheless, God told him, you're going to love this woman. And repeatedly as she goes after chasing her lovers, even having children with them, she comes back and there's Hosea, the loving husband. And he takes her back in. And God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And he says, I'm using this living, breathing illustration of Hosea and his wife as, a, as an illustration of a greater love that I have for Israel, who had whored after other gods. Psalm 78, verse 58 says, For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. That was in the wilderness. It was after they got the law. By the way, the law said don't make carved images, right? Exodus 20. The very finger of God wrote on the tablets. It says, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath and that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. Well, that's a hard thing right in the middle of the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? Um, but it's true. He says, don't, don't worship anything but me. And our, it's easier to worship something carved or something you can pick up or tangible or, or look at or some medallion or some, you know, some little article of jewelry that we have that thinks you know, it'll, it'll keep us from harm if we have it than to actually go before the living and true God who we need to worship in spirit and in truth and pour out our hearts to him and say, Lord, protect me. Much easier for me just to put, you know, some little medal of a saint somewhere or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, that's what people do. And they don't know the living, true God. He says, don't do that. I'm a jealous God. He wants us to worship him. He wanted Israel to worship him. By the way, 
he's jealous for his name. That's the first thing. Ezekiel 39 verse 25. Look what it says here. Therefore thus says the Lord God. Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob. And have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. He's jealous for his land. We read that already. But we read also he's jealous for his inheritance and his, his land. Joel says that. Um, Joel 2.18. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Zechariah, he's jealous for the inheritance. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem, for Zion with a great jealousy. And we're reminded that the nations that were laughing and causing harm to Israel, including the Babylonians, would have that measure brought to them. By the way, the Medes and the Persians, remember? In the great scheme of national uh, geopolitics and everything else, you read in the Bible how the greatest military and kingdom of the world at the time, the Babylonians, were, um, were brought low. They were utterly destroyed by the Medes and the Persians in one night. Wow. The very thing they wanted to do to the Jew was measured back to them. Well, the psalmist prayed that some 400 years before that. Almost 500 years before that. Jesus said that too in Matthew 23. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers. He's talking to the Pharisees. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Wow. Jesus warned them. Almost out of time here, but I'll go over these two points. The intercessor. Pleading for God's help. Look what the psalmist writes. Help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of your name. And deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your namesake. That's a great verse. Wow. Provide atonement for our sins. You know, God cannot help us in our sinful state until we have an atonement for our sins. And that atonement, of course, is found by the death of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And that's where you start to have peace with God. You cannot have peace with God and you cannot have the blessings of God until you have the atonement for your sins. Salvation. O God of our salvation. Yeshua, that's the Hebrew word there again. The actual name for Jesus. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants which has been shed let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power preserve those who are appointed to die how many have experienced that and they've been on a death row situation imprisoned in this case many would later be imprisoned in babylon or somewhere else and they were appointed to die and they said he says lord you listen to them listen to their groaning he did Lots more that could be said about that. The intercessor. And they were concerned for uh, the justice of God. He mentions twice in this psalm, uh, in uh, verse 3 and then in verse 10, about the slaughter of people and the, and the blood. And the blood was sacred to the Jew, right? God had told him the life is in the blood. And by the way, uh, God takes note of everybody who sheds blood. 
Um, and, and understandably, there are those that are called to shed blood on behalf of fighting evil or avenging that way as an instrument of God. But, but God even takes note of that. It's not his delight to see someone killed or their blood being shed. Even David, who was a man after God's own heart, was not allowed to build the temple because God says, you're a bloody man. You've shed a lot of blood. God takes note of all that. But particularly, the blood of his own that have been killed by those that hate him, he takes note of that and he'll avenge it. Might not be now, it might be later, but he always will get justice for that. And I could go on and on with more. But last point is the worshiper. And that's the last couple of verses here. Promising to praise God. And I love the way this psalm ends, okay? He goes on to say this, And return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom. That's what he's saying. What they took from us, what they've done to us, return it sevenfold. And by the way, seven is the number of completion, isn't it? And what he's saying there is, Lord, completely judge. And of course, God would do that and will do that. Their reproach, which they have reproached you, O Lord, or with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture. There it is again, right? The sheep of your pasture. Boy, that's laying it on God. Saying, God, remember, you're a shepherd and we're your sheep. And you're supposed to take care of us. Now, God's a big God, and he can take that. (laughs) The psalmist is not trying to manipulate God or lay that out. He's reminding God of what God has told him, that I'm your shepherd. We'll give you thanks forever. Now, Asaph, he would not be part of that generation taken by the Babylonians, but his descendants would be. And that would take place. In Jeremiah 32, verse 18, it says this, You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And again, as I said, Jesus said the same thing in Luke 6. Give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. And uh, again, that's, that's all part of that, right? Uh, both for good and for evil. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. And what I like about that is Asaph, there are four Asaphs mentioned in the Bible, four different ones. Uh, The one that is most well known is this one, who is the contemporary of David. He was a songwriter and most likely an assistant to David. And so they worked hand in hand in that. But there was that Asaph who would eventually someday, his sons would be part of the remnant that returned back to Jerusalem. And they're mentioned in Ezra and also in Nehemiah. And I love that. They're, they're actually numbered there. Ezra chapter 2 verse 41. The singers, the sons of Asaph. The singers. 128. There were 128 great-great-great-grandsons that ended up back in Jerusalem. And you know what they were doing? They were still singing. Still singing. 
Oh, praise God for that. Nehemiah says the same thing. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. Another 20 he found somewhere. And a little different timing there, obviously. There were others that had returned. Wow. Praise God for what he had done. And you know what? There'll be a remnant that continues to sing. And someday in glory, we who are the redeemed will sing forever his praises. So this psalm ends on a high note again. And let's end that way. Father, thank you for just the opportunity to come and worship you tonight. And we recognize that great promise that we shall praise you forever. Help us to do that even now. And may, Lord, in your timing and will and as you tarry, O Lord, may our uh, generations that come out of our church continue to sing and lead many more to that knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.